Hi, and welcome to Lament Configuration, a podcast about the shit that makes us sick. I'm Gretchen Felker-Martin, horror author and film critic, and with me is my co-host... Julia Graffer. I'm a cartoonist. A horror cartoonist, even. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. I do, like, it's... I think that there's a certain type of horror head who immediately is able to appreciate what I do as horror... But I, I, I also feel like there's, uh, like I, I want to say also it's like romance or erotica or like instead of comics it's tragics or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's a type of genre that I am carving out as I, as I do it. Yeah, it's sort of like um. If Bram Stoker's Dracula was defined by being really depressed as well as really horny. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Just like right on. I don't know. I I I love that your stories feel like someone has both feet pressed down to the floorboards of the car, one on the gas and one on the brakes. <laughs> <laughs> It's oh. as a person who drives a standard transmission car, I think uh I have a uh just one foot firmly pressed on the uh on the clutch. <laughs> and whatever happens, happens. <laughs> I mean, my horror is definitely very horny as well, but and we've mm-hmm, talked about mm-hmm. this before, but it's also much more abrasive than like prickly yeah i mean first of all you like to be abrasive not that i dislike it as a rule but you definitely lean into that i think also in prose you have more of an opportunity to you have more of an ability to tell the reader how they feel about what's happening yeah like i can show something gross happening but i don't have much control over whether or not the person who is reading it is actually grossed out by it. And the way that people respond to an image of something gross is so widely varied. There are people who uh, will look at a drawing of something upsetting happening and be like, Oh wow, I can't believe that you would show something so gross. And other people who will look at it and be like, well, this, this, you know, whatever it's gross things happen in pictures sometimes you know that i'm thinking about the fleam and vision right now (laughs) nice i love that fleam it's a great fleam yeah so for listeners who are not aware a fleam is a a device for bloodletting back when that was a type of a medical treatment that you could have so the idea of bloodletting is is uh this is part of the uh humorous theory of medicine where your humors are out of balance and and uh if you're sick then like your blood is bad so you gotta like get rid of some of the blood and then you'll be better so you get some of it out by cutting a vein or with leeches also is a very cool way to do it uh so a fleam is a device to cut a vein to to make several cuts at once or you know it might have like a spring-loaded kind of like a blade that you push a button and it flick cuts the vein open uh i find that fascinating as a person who has tried to cut veins open many times it's amazing that they have created many devices like that and you can just apparently have one as a doctor in the 1870s (laughs) i was so captivated by it like that that was one of the central images that uh, contributed to the inception of that story. It's certainly like the one panel that has stayed with me most. It's so gross. Uh, and so it, gross. It's very um, it's interesting because people either not everybody their reviews of Vision that not everybody who is listening to this is going to have read my comic but uh so vision is a comic that takes place in the 1870s and one of the characters is like an invalid who is who is having blood let as part of her treatment and then 
another character sees this happening and then in the subsequent immediately subsequent scene like cuts herself with a razor because she's upset it's it's self-harm not a suicide attempt but there have been reviews of it that refer to it as a sort of a suicide attempt which is dumb to me like as a person who's intimately familiar with the difference between those two things it is i it's hard for me to imagine that you could conflate the two but the difference is not obvious to everybody i guess but i think that's a matter of like you should not be ignorant in that way as an adult yeah and it's an easily fixable error in one's understanding yeah i don't I don't think that self-harm is uncommon. I couldn't tell you like what the statistics are on it, but I would imagine that like, uh, even if you do have access to statistics that the self-reporting on it is not necessarily reflective of the reality. Right. Because not everybody who self-harms is cutting themselves with razors. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of people are self-harming in much more subtle ways and you know the overlap of like people receiving some kind of therapeutic benefit from bloodletting and people who are self-harming for not because they're suicidal but because they're trying not to kill themselves right because they want to release from the anxiety and depression and intense feelings that they are weathering every hour of every day. Yeah. The parallel between those two things is what I am talking about in the comic and showing those two scenes side by side. Anyway, if you know, you know. Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I, I was going to make a really good fleam pun here. But, Do it. Oh, okay, fine. Uh, I would like to hear it, please. At first, when I read that scene, I thought it was really gross. But then I realized there's a lot more going on there than it flames. <laughs> God damn it, Cretan. You asked for it. I know. I did, and I got it. I got exactly what I deserved. Yep. Dead dove. <sighs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What I was going to say is that self-harm is something that I regularly depict in art, and you do too, and I feel like so much of our response to it is tied up in like instinctive knee-jerk horror. Mm-hmm. And that's very heavily socially reinforced. So much of like therapeutic intervention is focused on getting you to stop. Yeah, we've talked about that too. Like how, yeah. uh, what a difference it makes when you have a therapist who's just like, okay, so this is the thing that you're going to do. And I'm going to trust you to not kill yourself. Yeah. God, it's like people... and listen like if there if if somebody can be an expert in the difference between cutting yourself just to hurt and cutting yourself to do lasting damage like it's us yeah i've perfected that difference yeah i'm on top of the shit and i know like because i definitely i'm sorry to just throw all the listeners here into the real triggery discussions but i definitely have uh cut myself worse than i have meant to and had to do first aid on myself to be like okay i'm actually not trying to die or go to the hospital (laughs) yep i have been there too i that's what that um i don't know if you've seen it that kind of gnarly scar on my left calf is from Mm -hmm. yeah like i know the fucking difference yeah these are they're not totally disparate urges, no. but they are different. Yes. I know what the difference is. That's yeah. funny. It's one of those things where when somebody responds to your work, you know at what level they are relating to it. Immediately. 
Mm-hmm. And I don't want to, I do and I don't want to bring it immediately to like a misandrist place. But the questions that generally speaking men have about my work, I think a lot of them have a harder time understanding that difference. Yeah, that I have seen that as well. Yeah. I want to say that's like a socialization thing, right? Like men learn to uh, feel outwards instead of acting out their feelings on their own bodies. Yeah, I think that's like the impression that culture sort of vaguely wants men to come out with. Yeah, but that's not, I mean, saying they learn to do that is, you know, I wonder about that because... You know, it's a question like, do trans women learn to do that? But they don't, right? Well, that's a complicated question. And I think the reality is that it's different for all trans women. The way that I've chosen to think about it, when I was being brought up as a boy, I was presented with that same social messaging and those same pressures. And I personally... I think was influenced by it, even though I was a really sensitive kid and was always very emotional. Mm -hmm. You know what you're supposed to be like. Mm -hmm. So I think the idea is like they expect you to act this way as a boy. Right. You know, when you're off book. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) And I think that those social impressions are present for everyone. And may or may not have different influences throughout their lives, whether or not they transition. Mm -hmm. I think that social conditioning is real, but not determinative. Mm -hmm. And also not uniform. Yeah. You know, like I said, I got the whole kit and caboodle and wound up like a weepy artsy fag anyway. (laughs) You even... As a boy, you were still like the girliest boy. <laughs> I, I was, everyone was constantly like, you're gay. You look like a woman. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, I was, uh, I was a very pretty younger child. Yeah, you were a pretty child. Hmm. <laughs> Terrible time. <laughs> Terrible. I was raised by relatively progressive parents uh and I was also their only child they split up when I was pretty young and I think that they did their best to raise me in a like gender neutral kind of a way so I think that probably makes a difference I'm sure it does my parents were not very progressive in most ways they were in some but you know like my dad called me a sissy and stuff did he? Yeah, it never is like... After all the shit he put you through. <laughs> yeah, never out of like rage, but it was definitely something you should not say to your child. Mm. Yeah. yeah, I, I was also to... one of five, so I was just generally less scrutinized. <laughs> yeah, I was an only child. I have a younger sister now, but she's 16 years younger than me, so it's like... A whole different thing from growing up with a younger sibling. Yeah. You know, I have a son who is 11 and a half, and I have always really tried to raise him in a gender neutral way. Uh, I really admire people who are able to raise their babies as theys and let them choose their gender, but it's not like I didn't have the kind of like social support that would allow that to. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I think like, first of all, you have to have like a whole community of people who buy into that. Right. I was going to say Frank is probably the kid I've met who is the chillest about gender. Yeah. He's very chill. It does not face him at all. Um, Mm -mm. He's never said word one to me about it. Mm Mm-mm. Hmm. No, he's like, since he's been aware of the concept of men and women, he's been aware of the concept of trans men and trans women. Mm -hmm. So it's like, 
not a hurdle for him, which is adorable. It really is. It's very endearing. It's so nice to be in that house and feel normal. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. I mean, like, I... He, for whatever reason, like, finds it easier to relate to other adults. I mean, other not because he's an adult, because, but, like, other than me. Because I'm the person that he is most used to spending time with. And most of my friends are, I think, actually, all of my close friends are queer. So it's, like, he doesn't have, like, an expectation in that way. Right. You know, he's not like when he meets a woman, he's not like, uh, where's her husband or whatever. <laughs> right. It's uh, it's pretty much a nonstop parade of freaks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He, ha- he has like no predetermined, like, here's what this person is going to be like based on whatever. More, I feel bad that he is so accustomed to hanging out with adults, but... I have like a limited amount of control over the kind of person that he's going to be. And I can't help that he hangs out with my friends more than he hangs out with his peers. You know, I was a lot like that. Not when I was his age, but when I was a little older, like Mm -hmm. 14 through 17. And, or like, I think of like, Hazel is like a model for me as a person who had like kind of woke parents. Yeah. They turned out okay and like learned to be friends with lots of different kinds of people. Right. You know, uh, Hazel and I were both um, homeschooled. Homeschooled. And neither of us turned out to be some sort of like mouth breathing freak. (laughs) I mean, Frank's not homeschooled, but he's still like the, the, uh, I don't know, maybe this will change as he becomes more of a teenager. But right now, like, the locus of his feeling seen is at home. Yeah. I'm sure that, you know, like all people, he will change as he grows up. <laughs> He's a remarkable little guy. He's terrific. I'm very fond of him. Should we get into some questions? Yeah, let's do some questions. All right. This one comes from Just a Feline. If aliens were to contact Earth, who would slash should they contact? Asking for a friend from space. (laughs) No one. Don't come here. It's so bad. Dolphins? I mean, they rape each other, Julia. I... I don't know how dolphins feel. (sighs) I think that it it given like a proper cultural context like rape can be not a personality defining experience. Sure, absolutely. But maybe, like maybe dolphins have like supportive rape survivor communities. No, from what I've seen it's just really traumatic. All right, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Look at those big brains they have. Who knows what's going on in those? That's very true. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I can't think of anyone that it would be beneficial for an alien to contact on Earth. What would be like the ideal outcome of interacting with an alien? They fix our shit. Uh, they can't. Like, you can't. When I, just to go back immediately to my children, uh, you know, if my kid is having trouble with his homework and I'm like, oh, I know what you do. You just do this and this. That's like, how helpful is that? How much right. is he learning from that? I, You got to figure it out for yourself. And then like the aliens are showing up and like walking us through our problems and being like, oh, you know, well, if uh, Juanita has like 35 cucumbers and then like she gives two thirds of her cucumbers to... Esteban, then how many cucumbers can Esteban bring to the fucking Kiwanis trade fair? Like, I <laughs> that sucks for the aliens. That's boring for them. Yeah, so, no, it's garbage. Yeah. 
I don't know, maybe it would be cool for aliens to like interact with our culture's artistic output. Mm-hmm. Maybe they'd be like, this is some buck wild shit. They'll meet Marcel Duchamp. <laughs> They'll be like, wow, this furry teacup. <laughs> this is janked, man. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the kind of shit that aliens do. Yeah. Yeah, maybe it they depends could, like, on the aliens. I, maybe okay. they could murder Kissinger for us. Okay. Is he still alive? How? I know. I know. Just surviving on pure cussedness. Every morning he, like, <clears throat> doesn't die. And it just makes me angrier and angrier every day. <laughs> just drinks the blood of a Vietnamese child. Oh, man. God knows he has enough of it lying around. Uh-huh. So when I was like maybe 12, uh, my favorite book was Sphere by Michael Crichton. Oh, yeah. That's a Did great you book. read that? Yeah. Yeah, it's really good. I think personally, I think it might actually be his best. And the premise of Sphere is that some people encounter a space object that has been picked up by a human spaceship of the future uh, that didn't know what to do with it. Uh, and it killed them. And then the other people who are the protagonists of the book also encounter it and it fucks them up really bad. And I think the analogy that they make is like a an air conditioner or something. Like, let's say you're a fly and you fly into an air conditioner and you like are zipping around in there and you're like, oh, this is like a... a machine that was constructed by some higher intelligence to like test a fly and i've like made a wrong decision and now it's going to kill me and the purpose of an air conditioner is like to test the intelligence of a fly fundamentally an, an encounter between ourselves and an alien intelligence is predetermined to be a a disastrous misunderstanding yeah i mean it's I've often thought that it's it's very likely we simply won't be able to communicate at all. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, you know, possibly we've encountered lots of attempted communications from aliens and have no ability to... Like, that's part of, that's part of the establishing mythology of Sphere, also, is that right. they talk about the, like, Arecibo message to, like you know, that we broadcast communicate with alien life forms that we then shared with the brilliant minds of earth to let them try to decode it. And they weren't able to do it. They weren't (laughs) able to make sense of it. (sighs) Any creature that is not from earth is going to be completely unable to, I already know that we're, not engaging with this question on a fun level we we (laughs) share a planet with creatures that are equally intelligent to ourselves that we have not figured out how to communicate with fluently right there's no hope for us to communicate with creatures from other planets if we can't talk to octopi and (laughs) and elephants we're fucked yeah when it comes to anything else um, but I guess if I wanted the aliens to have a cool time on Earth, I would say like, I don't know, like uh, me, just check out the ocean. It's crazy. Find some people who are on acid. Oh man, those people are receptive to your shit. Oh, try Earth drugs. We have all kinds of great shit. Just DMT, maybe. I don't. I mean, like you know. Assuming you have better science or whatever, make sure it won't kill you or whatever. Mm. But definitely try a drug if you can. (laughs) Find people who are on drugs. I mean, because people who take psychedelic drugs are, I think, more than the general population uh, open to understanding world's beyond the consensus reality (laughs) yes absolutely talk to some acid heads yeah Mm, that's bleak that's what we've got to offer i'm sorry i'm sorry aliens
yeah it's a real bummer like i said don't come here no Oof. next one yeah this comes from ospare what do you think of the trope of the evil child a la we need to talk about kevin which is a, a film from i think about six or seven years ago i haven't i didn't see we need to talk about kevin um i've seen the about, bad seed yeah we need to talk about kevin is about tilda swinton as a mother raising a child who has antisocial personality disorder uh, personally i'm not opposed to like movies about unsettling or evil children like i love the innocence which is an adaptation of turning of the screw i wouldn't say the children in it are evil but they're definitely sometimes disturbingly adult sometimes vindictive and kind of stupidly cruel in a way that small children often are and those things can be very frightening in a dramatic context I don't know that I have any like particular judgment on the trope of the evil child. I don't look for it or shy away from it in particular. I think that we need to make a distinction between the reality of children and uh, children in fiction. The idea of like a child as a symbol of the self untainted by society because children in reality are are the products of whatever we do to them they mm -hmm. are not really responsible for what they do i fully believe that i really believe children should not be tried as adults they should not be considered in any way uh full moral actors but a child in fiction is a symbol of something unselfconscious. Mm -hmm. And I guess that can be interesting. I don't, I'm trying to think if there's like an evil child that I really. We both like the exorcist, but that's, I mean, that's not the child. That's the demon. Yeah. That's not her. I mean, it's, it's symbolic of like her, her oncoming puberty, but Right, like Reagan is susceptible to the demon because she is in this this weird like uh in between state. Right. But she's not the one who says your mother sucks cocks in hell. <laughs> right. There's got to be I feel like there must be like an evil child that I like. I can think of a lot of like abrasive frightening difficult children in art that i find compelling to watch like samuel from the babadook i thought that was a yeah really great i was thinking of him. Child. but he's not evil he's just like fucked yeah. up he's just struggling yeah that's not his fault i think the idea of a child as something that is evil is pretty boring to me because it's like oh we took something that's really culturally sacred and we profaned it I'm like okay man <laughs> just go piss in a church at least that's like fun yeah literally um, like the the madonna with weird tits and the exorcist right and if it's a child who is possessed by something like in the exorcist then it's very dependent on the adaptation because i don't think it's an inherently interesting idea i think you have to be skillful to make that violation interesting and upsetting in a way that's generative there are people who relate to fictional children and people who do not when i see children in fiction usually they have adults associated with them and i i relate to those adults it's the same as like if i if i talk about my children online <laughs> like on Twitter, then there are people who are like, "Oh, I totally relate to your child because I That's too." That's me, AF. Yeah. Yeah. Or or yeah, they'll be like, was... "Oh, I I wish that uh, I had a mom like you." <laughs> and, and it's like the, you're the you same goddamn age as me. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, it is time for you to be an adult in the world. I don't. You and I though have like a relationship to getting older that is very outside the main for a lot of a lot of women. I suppose so. Yeah. In that we don't hate it and aren't afraid of it. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah, you know, I was talking about this on Twitter earlier. I feel like the way that the world understands feminism in the public sphere right now is basically as like women getting more time and space to say things and to be allowed to do things. Mm-hmm. And that can translate, can translate to women having time and space to express the misogynist ideas that they've internalized about themselves and other women so you wind up with people who are publicly like oh i'm so scared of getting older or oh i'm so scared of getting fat and save it for your fucking therapist man you're poisoning the rest of us and you're not doing yourself any favors yeah like these fears are not abstract people who are fatter and older than you have to read your shit right they're they're around no matter they we are here yes i can't tell you how many people who people i like have said like things about their own bodies that imply really hateful things about mine right (sighs) anyway grow up that's that's my advice i don't I have no time to like place myself as a child in a narrative. Yeah, it's it's just not something that occurs to me or appeals to me at this point I in my life. I feel like a child when I was a child. <laughs> right. When I was a child, the thing that I wanted more than anything was to stop being a child. And now that I'm not a child, I love not being a child. I was completely right. <laughs> yeah, being an adult rules. Yeah, being a child sucked and was awful. Yes. All right, next question. This okay. one comes... Ooh, it's another Sarah question from Bodhi Sue. What's the worst fandom? Damn, Sarah out here with these bangers. Uh, I don't know. Like, there's Harry Potter. Harry Potter is definitely, I think, the most, like, socially visible and acceptable fandom that has become something monstrous. <laughs> I'm like only vaguely aware of the Harry Potter mythos. <laughs> it's, I mean, it's nothing. It's you could substitute any other story. Mm. It's it's broad blandness is its appeal. You know, there's like probably a lot of really hateful fandoms. There's like Hitler fandom. That's not. <laughs> If we can take all the like really hideous fandoms as read, the fandoms that are most annoying to me personally, I don't know, like Shira. <laughs> oh my god. <sighs> I'm only I... barely aware of Shira also. It's just that like when people are pricks to me online, I like click around their profile and then it turns out they're Shira fans. Yeah, that certainly happens to me uh fairly often. Um <laughs> I can still remember a time that someone told me that Shira had far better body diversity than The Sopranos. No. What? Which is just okay. so unbelievably batshit insane. One of the characters on Shira is a horse. And like, I don't know if that's true. I haven't watched Shira. I when I was a little girl, I had Shira figurines and one of them was a horse. Well, I'm going to say for the sake of continuity with your childhood toys that yes there's a horse on shira does she smell Um, really good because the horse that i had smelled really good yeah she smells amazing yes every time they introduce her you know she shows up and trots into frame is like hi i'm horse girl i smell great i had i had the translucent pink horse and i also had the uh furry like woman lion but she had like a curly purple mane and she had gem eyes also. That rips. That's representation. Yeah, is that, that's, that's like a trans lioness. That is absolutely what is happening there. Shira's woke, actually. 
<laughs> but old Shira. <laughs> yeah. Um, I have no truck with this new Shira. This lumberjane Shira. So ugly. It's, I mean, it's, it's bland. Yeah. But anyway, that person told me that Shira had better body diversity than the Sopranos, which. What's the fattest character on Shira? The fattest character on Shira is like. What do her ankles look like? Oh, they're perfectly slim and normal. Um, As opposed to like all the. What does her waist look like? It, she her body looks kind of like a bean but then she has like a slim neck and face uh-huh, uh-huh. and i learned something really horrific when i mentioned this on <gasps> social media which was that the animators subsequently slimmed her down <laughs> no i know slimmed her down from a bean slimmed her down from a bean to like a, a curvier bean so she like uh big titties fat she's like a hourglass fat no she's just like bean fat just like a a slightly lozenge shaped person (laughs) but i mean she's not she's not fat at all right (laughs) that's the that's the subtext here (laughs) right uh where else not fat on the other hand you have tony soprano and tony's fat Ginny's sacrimony and Ginny's uh, real fat. Yeah, Ginny's very fat. Ginny's like real ass fat, like a yeah a actual fat woman that you would know. Yes, not like not this TV fat. Is in a, um, movie about how it's hard to be fat because she's <laughs> size eight. Oof. And then there's Vito Spatafore, who has like a he's whole fat fucking, as hell. He's extremely fat. He's he's actual fat. Yep. And. And there's Pussy Bump and Sorrow. God, there's so many fat people on this show. I just want to specify also that Vito and Ginny both are unambiguously objects of desire. Yep. They have people who are so hot for them and so in love with them. And it's honestly like... I mean, it's so... And it's not even like... it's. It's awkward for them only with Johnny Sack in the sense that people make fun of him about it. But it's right. it's there's never like a question of are these people really hot or not? Like they are plainly hot to certain people. Right. Which is like that's all hotness is anyway. Yeah. Um, it's like treated with the same goofiness as like uh, Uncle June liking to eat pussy. Like, <laughs> right is it silly Um, to be into this like well yes but also like no yeah that's like it's it's silly in the sense that all desire is silly yeah i'm um re-watching the series with my roommate who has never seen it before how does she like it she loves it hell yeah which has been really fun um i knew that we were going to be friends when she never once asked me to skip the opening credits fuck yeah yeah but we recently rewatched the episodes where Vito flees to new hampshire and falls in love with a, a gay man as a new hampshire person the new hampshire episodes are just very uh very good to me yeah it's stunning going to his how... stupid bed and breakfast eating his fucking johnny cakes oh my falling god falling asleep There's... in the fucking barn that he's supposed to be working on Yes, God, I was I was a handyman, um, right? And I definitely did that shit. And like, yeah, I mean, I didn't remember what time it was. I didn't have the like same boy expectations of being a handyman, but I definitely have like been left to my own devices in a barn to like do work and been like, (laughs) (laughs) but what really struck me going back through it this time was how incredibly hot the chemistry is between those two actors yes like the scene where it's right it could before be a whole they... other show that's just like a romance show yeah 100 percent. and they you know they cover all of it in like two and a half episodes which are also about a ton of other stuff and but anyway. i would just like to also specify that like this was on in 2006 or whatever when and also that no one 
on that show ever patted themselves on the back about it. Yeah. There was just like not as much gay shit on TV then. <laughs> yeah. It was and this was very unpopular. People were really mad about it. Yeah. They were like, what's the point of this? Blah blah blah. blah there blah, wasn't blah. like uh, you know, gangsters shooting each other about strippers who are like nineteen. Right. And there's this incredible scene where they're at the bar together after they answer a volunteer fire department call. Mm-hmm. And they're just staring at each other from across the table while their buddies joke around them. And it's so hot. That's so romantic. Yeah, it really is. It's just like, here in this moment, you're the only thing that's real to me. And I'm I'm, I'm so clearly thinking about like heaving you up onto the table and fucking the shit out of you. <sighs> it's a very romantic relationship. It's very beautiful. It's very sexy. I mean, if I you, can... if you can remove the thread of mortal violence, <laughs> <laughs> right. then like the whole like forbidden love aspect of the Johnny Cakes plotline is it's so it's literally the essence of romance. Yes, it is. And I mean it's not that the the murderousness of Vito, who we have seen kill like, you know, a twenty two year old man lessens the impact of that. It's it's just that it's fundamentally kind of a different story because he is that kind of person. A part of what makes it so romantic is that Vito is such a, a squalid little creature. Yeah. And then, He's... like, removed from his context, he has the opportunity to be a romantic hero to somebody. Yeah. It's very beautiful. And it's very sad. It really is. It's really special. Yeah, uh, it is. I can't tell you, like, what it meant to me for that show to have, like, two very emotionally intense storylines that took up hours of screen time that were all about a fat person's sexuality. Mm-hmm. And you and know I who remember else when was- that was on the air, people being like, what the fuck are we doing right now? Yeah. I think I'm I've sorry. seen maybe one other show that did anything even related to that. And I, oh, yeah. I don't, I don't shows- fuck with sitcoms like shrill or whatever. That's just not for me. People don't want to talk about fat characters' sexuality. No, in fact, last year I was writing an essay about like contemporary liberal and leftist attitudes towards fatness. Uh huh. And it was so depressing. I was working on it with my friend Annie Rose that we just gave up. <laughs> right about supersize me. It we started with supersize me as kind of like a watershed moment where fat bodies became like a, a Judas goat uh-huh. for all of society's ills and for like the problems inherent in capitalism. Fatness is like the Doritos of sexuality where like people don't like to admit how into it they are. <laughs> That's extremely true. Like they're like, it's there. actually very attractive and Nobody likes to be like, oh, Doritos are actually my favorite food. (laughs) Because it's gauche. When I transitioned, I gained like 100 pounds on estrogen. Did you? Yes. And immediately had like a lavish sex life. Was it like girly pounds, like in your tits and ass? Yeah. Nice. It was also like I was going on antidepressants and I was very depressed, but it's common to gain weight when you go on estrogen. You know, when I was working as a prostitute, you would not believe the variety of people who are so desperate to sleep with a fat woman. Yes. It's like, it's incredibly common. And it's like, it's a taste that like people don't want to admit to. No, because it's also shameful because they know they're not supposed to because we're degraded or stupid or whatever. But it's so profoundly human. Yeah. Those those are the earliest human representations that we have are fucking fat women. Yep. This this 
thing that is both symbolically and literally comforting and sensual and awe-inspiring. Yeah, there's a fixation on that body. Yeah, there is. Part of it is definitely like a, I want to crawl back up into mommy thing. <laughs> <laughs> but beyond that, you know, I, I think mean, I'm, there's I, like, I think there's a lot of different like uh, ways that people intellectually deal with that. Yeah. Like, there are guys who are like, oh, well, I'm being more woke by being into this. And there are guys who are like, oh, I'm being submissive by like wanting to be, I don't know, like sat on or whatever. There are guys who are like, oh, well, you should be grateful to me for being into this. But it's all like, there's no, uh, you can put whatever label on it you want. It's still an almost universal desire. Yes. And any kind of uh, category that you put it into is just a, a after the fact, trying to make sense of what your boner did. That is exactly what it is. It's one of those things that like, uh, is the, you know, that metaphor of like the monkey riding on a tiger, facing <laughs> yeah. backwards and trying to explain where the tiger went. <laughs> yeah. That's your conscious mind. The ti- the the metaphor is that your the tiger is your con- your unconscious deciding where you go and the monkey is being like oh, this is yeah, why this I is- did that. Yeah. <laughs> Me, the person who decides what is happening. <laughs> I'm totally aware of all the decisions that we're making. Yeah, and like, you know, that's how we all live our lives. I mean, not to bring it back to, like, if you think about it too much, uh, boiling everything down to your, like, early childhood memories, that's kind of depressing. But, like, if your sexuality is tied to your, like, very early childhood experiences, then, like, it makes sense that you want, like, somebody who can envelop you with like big tits that they shove in your face. I don't know. Yeah. It makes sense that you would want someone soft and warm and who makes you feel held. Yeah. Oh man. It's been way too long since I had sex with another fat girl. (laughs) (laughs) Is it hard to be that though? Like, yes, I'm, unwillingly turned into like an emotional support or a maternal figure all the time and it's exhausting to try and navigate setting boundaries because you are bigger on average than most people yeah i mean i'm i'm very fat you're very fat and you're very tall yes and i do think that a lot of people would like to experience being small and vulnerable compared to me and that's that sucks because like (laughs) smallness and vulnerability are feminine coded right and i you know so then they're like creating themselves as as feminine in comparison to you right i did actually once have sex with a, a much thinner trans woman who would not stop saying like oh you make me feel so delicate you make me feel so small shut the fuck up yeah it it really (laughs) fucked me up for a while um that sucks so much it's not even that i couldn't get anything out of a situation like that or would be blanket unwilling to do that with someone else like there are times that i like to be able to envelop a partner Mm -hmm. because it's a very powerful and like satisfying feeling yeah i love to be the big spoon yeah it's great and like knowing that you can make someone feel safe and warm and completely and totally held is very special and very hot Mm -hmm. but it's i would like to be asked (laughs) (laughs) well it's different like you don't want to be you don't want to make someone else feel feminine in comparison to. 
Right. That it's it's not something I'm chasing in my life is feeling less feminine. And it sucks like to have femininity be created as a part of like being smaller or weaker than. Right. It does. Because we can't necessarily be that. Like I feel very I'm cis. I'm comfortable with that. I feel very feminine in myself. <sighs> but I don't necessarily experience that as being smaller or weaker. Like I don't I generally speaking I'm attracted to men who are like not much bigger than me. Mm-hmm. And that's like, you know, culturally I see that as as uh that's different from what I see other like cishet women experiencing. Yeah, it's definitely true. And, uh, you know, so I have to conceive of like my femininity as being not necessarily tied to being smaller than my partner or weaker than him. That is certainly a process with which I am intimately familiar. Yeah. Let me tell you all about it. I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) no it's okay that's a real thing we've both experienced yeah but like those kind of signifiers are so complicated to understand like it's one thing to see it in practice it's one thing to see it in culture and another thing to experience it for yourself that's very true were we answering a question or are we just shooting the shit right now God, I don't even remember. I think... No, I don't know. I think... Oh, we were talking about what was the worst fandom. How did we fucking get here? Wow, the worst fandom. I mean, aside from all the, like, extremely right-wing fandoms and Harry Potter, I I mean, how many fandoms do I come into contact with? I'm an admin of a Discord for fandom writers over 30. So I feel like I should have fandom awareness. But the the uh, Harry Potter f- fans on the Discord are pretty harmless. Yeah. <laughs> there's I, like, I mean, there's I... a lot of Witcher fans. Witcher seems fine. <laughs> that seems cool. The Witcher is so silly. Is it? Have you watched it? Have you played it? I've I've played the game. I've I haven't watched the show. It didn't look interesting to me. Um, is there the is there the the like bard character in the game? There's a bard. His name is Dandelion. Yeah, yeah, that guy. That's yeah. the ship with him um, and the the Witcher guy, the blonde guy. <laughs> that seems like, charming. It's. Mostly just sort of boring and stayed. Uh, it's like, uh, what if there was a gritty series about some guys who were a little bit magical? What if there was like a really tough, like, masculine guy who's like killing people but was sad about it, but then there was like also like a a silly, like maybe kind of like bisexual guy who was like also there <laughs> yeah that's pretty much it and also it was all really sexist is it oh yeah it's just viciously sexist that's a shame not even that's in like, like a horny vibe. way like because game of thrones oh, is no. sexist in like a horny way yeah no in the a Witcher way where is, like is... it's written by people who like George R. R. Martin, I feel like, is is conscious of the sexistness of the tropes that he is working through. Absolutely. And, like, I think there are times that he uh, goes with the flow of them, but his object is always to interrogate them. Like, yeah. he's definitely not just trying to replicate them, which is why I think Game of Thrones is so great. Or a song of ice and fire. Yeah, we're very much on the same page there. I 
was definitely so fond reading. of it. Yeah, it's a it's a fantastic series of books. They're brilliant and complicated. Fucking and big fan over here. Very sexy. I know that a lot of people say that the sex in A Song of Ice and Fire is cringe. No, but I it's good. The it's fucking good. that uh, fat pink mask shit. I'm into it. Yeah, like, it's great. Give me a fucking break. That fucking what's his name? Samuel Tarley? That's the guy. Yeah. <laughs> that he's gonna look at his boner and be like, oh, this is cool. I'm totally fine with this. No! He's weird about it. Right, because he has a fucked relationship with his body. Yeah, because he's like awkward and fat and like not masculine enough for his dad and he like doesn't right. understand why this girl that he likes is into him and he's like and he's been hideously abused and stuff. Yes. And it's a fat pink mask. That's fine. That's Yeah. That's a personal relationship to your body. That is how you write from the point of view of a character who has an ambivalent relationship to their own sexuality. That's yep. George nailed it. And people who want to be like that stupid sex writing are morons. And they are stupid and they don't are morons. fucking deserve it. I, and something that I've always loved about George R.R. R. Martin is that he's a fat, horny guy and he really gets yes! it. Yes, he really does. His and he's like full of like fat sex symbols. Oh yeah. Absolutely. And like they run the gamut too between like people who are like fine with being fat and horny and people who are very conscious of like how unchill it is to be fat and horny. Yep. I love him for that. I love I mean, <laughs> this is like the most holy office of a fiction writer is to inhabit all the different weird mentalities of people yeah you have to be able to do that you have to be able to get inside the heads of people who are not like you you really do and you also have to be honest about being inside the heads of people who are like you it's, you have it's to, a real process like you have to <laughs> you have to be able to admit to the part of you that is Samuel Tarley and not be like, oh, I'm too cool to be this guy. You have to be that guy. Yeah. You have to embrace the part of you that is that guy and is like, oh, I'm embarrassed. Right. I'm a if little you fat write, boner. If you want to write about fat people experiencing sexuality, then you have to write about like... You have to admit that you're uncomfortable. Yeah. You have to write about. You have to admit that, like, you live in a world where that's not a cool thing to be. Right, where that is on some level for probably everyone involved, there is a repulsive element. Yeah, and if you can like identify that and hug it to yourself, like, mm. then you get to the really horny shit. Right, then you get to the stuff that's like so horny that you can barely write it. That's. That's the really good stuff is when you like yes. write the shit that somebody else is going to read and be like, why the fuck would you write this gross shit? Typing with one hand, baby. Hell yes. Hell yes. That seems like Girl, a good sign point. Are we done? I, I think we're done. What do you think? I guess we're done. I miss you so much. I could talk I to you all night too. long. You know I that. know. Yeah, we should. Let's hang out soon. <sighs> I really hope we do. Me too. I love you, my brother. I love you too, my brother. From Bean to Bar. As per usual. As per usual. Listen, you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Spotify. anywhere podcasts are hosted. And anywhere that there's podcasts, you can leave us a five-star review. That would be really kind of you. Yeah, speaking of which, I read the reviews that we've gotten on. They're on nice. They're so thoughtful. I was I was really touched. I was also very touched. We've Thank been you for having a really good time reviews. making this. And it's so nice that people are like really into it. Thank you for being into it. I've been Gretchen Felker Martin. 
I've been Julia Griffith. And we will continue to be those women, but we're done. We will continue to be them. Good night. Good night.